Hi everyone, welcome to another episode. Today with a legend in the world of AFL and one of the leading advocates for suicide prevention in Australia, Mr. Wayne Swass. Wayne's football career is up there with the greats and could easily fill an entire conversation for itself. But in his words, football was a vehicle to finding his true meaning in life, shattering the stigma around mental health and also suicide prevention. Wayne is a very hard man to commend for his work. His selfless and humbling work with the Pucker Up organisation is taking big proactive steps in suicide prevention, which he goes into throughout this chat. To Liam and myself, Wayne is someone who wears a Superman symbol across his chest. But he's very quick to remind us that he, just like everyone else, struggles to find the balance. He mourns the loss of dear friends. He sought unhealthy means of escaping his mental health conditions. And most importantly, he has and continues to recognise that we all need to look after number one, ourselves. This was a truly humbling and a really important chat for Liam and myself. And we hope everyone takes a lot from it as well. Please enjoy our chat with Mr. Wayne Swass. This is the Men of Words podcast, where little conversations can make big differences. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Men of Words podcast. Uh, we're here again for another episode, and I am joined, as always, by my number one uh, co-host, Mr. Liam Murphy. Liam, how you doing, mate? Terrific, Matt. How are you? Good to be back. Very good to be back. And yes, doing really well, mate. Much appreciated. Um New episode today, pretty excited. Uh, Liam, would you please care to introduce our, uh, our, our guests for our conversation today? Absolutely, Muff. It's uh, very exciting, very humbling to have our guest today, AFL-VFL champion, um, one of Australia's leading advocates for mental health uh, and wellbeing here with us today, Mr Wayne Schwoss. Wayne, thank you. Welcome to the podcast. Uh, it's a pleasure to have the opportunity to sit down with you boys and have a chat. But I just need to, I need to delve into something straight away, and that is the nickname of Muff. That's, yeah. that, I find that fascinating. That's got my attention straight yeah. away. Yeah. Well. How much time have you got? Yeah. Well, I'm not sure how far we want to go down the hole here, but <laughs> as soon as you said it the first time, I thought, did I hear that right? And you said it the second time, I thought, I heard that yeah. right. I need, I need to have some understanding about who I'm talking to. Yeah, look, that's, um, and look, it's probably it's probably long overdue for uh, for the story of where that comes from. Because uh, you, you're not the first person to ask, as far as the people that we've had on for a chat. Um there is look there's a couple of versions of this story no, the, I want the, the real one yeah the, the, the truth yeah story. yeah so the truth uh truth not super exciting um a uh dis extension of my last name which is mumford so oh. yeah just sort of in true australian fashion no real rhyme or reason to the nickname but yeah that's sort of where it came from yeah, fully aware of the connotations yeah. uh, growing up as a teenager. That was made abundantly clear through all of my loving friends no, that mummy. I had. The, yeah, a little bit. I did a little yeah. bit. Yeah. Funnily enough, yeah, um, yeah when, like, when Shane Mumford made it onto the scene as a, uh, as a ruckman, I started getting mummy because I think he sort of had that a bit as well. Right. We don't really share many characteristics in, as far no. as ruckability and height go. Oh, but, I set uh, you both <laughs> the challenge. You need to interview mummy and you need to introduce yourself with the same surname as Muff and sort of get big mummy's response as to what he thinks about that. Yeah, that's it. He's probably, uh, yeah, well, that's one. Hey, we'll add to the list. The list is ever growing of crew that we want to chat to. So, so he's I'm one glad for. I know now. Well, I don't know. That's you. it, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's definitely be. a burden, but I think it's it's stuck. It sort of came about. Character building, you know, yeah. character building. I'm sure it is. <laughs> uh, so we might might launch in straight away. Obviously, um, we've been pretty pretty privileged to to speak with a few people in the elite sports category from a range of sports. Um, majority AFL at the moment, but we've spoken to A League soccer players. We've got some basketballers um, coming up shortly, and. 
I guess to, to kick us off, maybe due to the, the range of our listeners um, and their interests, some of, you, some of them may not know who Wayne Swass is. Yep. Um, who are you? What do you stand for? Oh, that's an interesting question. Um, I am someone who played 14 and a half years with uh, North Melbourne and Sydney in the AFL. Um, had a reasonably successful AFL career, then spent the following 17 years working in the AFL media landscape. Um, during that time, I've um, passionately advocated around the importance and value of well-being and mental health and also suicide prevention. It's, um, it's a cause which is close to my heart. I have a lived experience while I played football um, and it's something that there have been times where I've, I've, I've got to a point where I've said to myself, I don't want to do this anymore, I can't do it anymore. But every one of those moments where I've thought and believed that I was going to walk away from mental health and, and well-being, something has happened where an opportunity is, has come into my life and it's just continued to remind me that this is something I'm incredibly passionate about to the point where um, you know, I've reinvested and committed myself professionally um, and personally to create Pucker Up and uh, I've... I've just pushed all my chips in on this. This is how much I believe in this issue and the importance of it. Um, walked away from all media commitments um, and I'm 110% invested into the work that we're doing because I just believe in it. Yeah. It's pretty special stuff. I know we, um, having both gone through some, some anxiety issues and stuff in the past as well, it's to see the amount of work and you, I guess, utilising your the platform that sport gave you. Mm. Um, and, and showing, like breaking down the barriers from that top elite side, um, it's definitely something that we're so, you know, excited about to be able to speak to you because we know how important it is and we, we speak about it on the daily, that how, how important we need to look after our mates but it's also looking after yourself as well that um, people seem to forget about, I suppose, and the work you're doing with Pucker Up in, in breaking down those barriers is definitely... Um, Incredible. No, I, I, look, I appreciate it. We, we, I and we don't do it for those reasons. It's a byproduct of what we do. But um, foot, foot, football uh, elite sport is a really selfish pursuit. It's about you. It's about what you're trying to achieve, what you want to achieve. It's about your goals, your dreams, and all of those type of things. And when I look back on my career and I think about what did that really mean, um, it, what it means is when we win and we achieve success, fans are happy. When we lose, they're disappointed. People that were there uh, when I was a member of the premiership team with North Melbourne in 1996 um, would say it's, some might say it's arguably the greatest day of their life. So it meant a significant amount to them. So it might have had a positive impact on their life. But I can hand on heart say that not one of my 282 games saved a life. And I say that with all due respect to my career, but the work I do now is the most important work that I do, which delivers the most satisfaction and reward. Not Again, not that we do it for this, but to know that the work that we do and continue to do has perhaps played a small role in encouraging both of you to begin to find a space where you can talk. The people that we've saved, and we've saved countless numbers of people um, from you know, ending their life, mm. 
to creating environments that allow other people to come in and begin to have these conversations, there's nothing else that I know of that can be so satisfying that we play a small role in giving people permission to talk. And that's what I think Pucker Up does incredibly well. Absolutely. Absolutely right. I know, you know, the motto for our podcast is the the little conversations make the biggest difference and Michael and I have been mates for a long time and we were living with the similar similar things without knowing Mm. um and yeah like you said the the work that pucker up do to allow people to get on the front foot and and start speaking about the little conversations you know even just the the first conversation Michael and I had was like a was a how you going and then it was like no no how you really going and that triggered it and we ended up catching up at once a week without without fail over a few beers and just sort of laying it all out on the table and we, we realised how similar, or not the same, but we are going through some similar things. Um, it, it sort of empowered us to, to go and take the next step again and, you know, seek professional help and, and really open up. So Yeah, yeah I really I, I like that. There's a few reasons why I like, I like what you've just said, Liam, and that is there's a relatedness with lived experience. Yeah. Oh, you too? Yeah. You mean I'm not the only person that's going through this? I say this all the time, but there's three million people in Australia currently living with anxiety and depression. Yeah. Three million. It's huge. That's what we know. Mm. In my opinion, the reality is that those numbers are actually higher. So in a population of 25 million, you start to get some perspective, think, well, this is affecting a lot of people. There's a lot of people that I'm engaging with, walking past in the street, buying a coffee from in a cafe, spending time with as family, friends, work colleagues that are in similar positions. <clears throat> and um, when you have a relatability, I think it gives you permission to begin to explore that and begin to talk about it. Um, and, and to be able to uh, connect, I mean, look, I, I present all over the country and human beings are social creatures. Our sense of connection and our sense of belonging is absolutely integral to who we are, what we do, and most importantly, how we feel about ourselves. So when you have a sense of connection, um, there, there's an opportunity to offer hope to the person that you're connecting with or receive hope from the person that you're connecting with. And I've worked in the suicide prevention space for 14 years. When people lose hope, Sorry, when people lose connection, they lose hope. When you lose both of those things, you start to think the only option you've got left is to end your life. Yeah. So I really like hearing stories where people are connecting about real things, important things, not superficial stuff, not pretentious things, but clearly you two young men have got your own experiences which might overlap. And I think it's really empowering and I think it's encouraging that I'm certainly starting to see a lot more examples of males talking. Uh, and that's something that, that is something, that I'm not sure I have the words to describe it, but giving men and males of all ages permission and the environment to come into these conversations has never been more important. Yeah. Ever. Because the reality is, and this is a warning for anyone, it might trigger somebody. Um, and that is that we lose eight people on average a day and six of the eight are men. Why? Yeah. Why, why is this happening? And um, part of my daily motivation is that there's somewhere in our history, this notion of weakness and being soft and not man enough has been intricately linked to the way that we are expected to behave. 
men are like women. Mm. We're vulnerable. We get emotional. We have insecurities. We're scared. We're frightened. We have relationship challenges. All of these things. But we get conditioned to believe that that's not what we're expected to behave like. And that, in my opinion, is part of the reason why we're losing so many important and valuable men across our country and women. But the response and the way that we behave as a society to girls and women is vastly different to the way that we behave to males, and that's got to change. Yeah. I think um, a really interesting point, and one thing you know, Liam and I had talked about as well, and for yourself, is that you know, like one thing that we've struggled with, or, or I guess you know, approach with some hesitation sometimes is the, I mean, just I mean, the broader idea of giving advice to someone, you know, be it uh, you know, if we feel unqualified to do so perceived or otherwise um you know one thing for you and i guess especially working in this space and working with a lot of young men as you have you know i guess you would sort of be giving this advice you know that you know transcends different generations i you know talking to people that are you know in a younger generation of yours and even i imagine in some cases people that are in an older generation as well have you ever found any i guess like difficulty or found anything that works in particular in giving that advice across generations because it's one thing I sort of you know I'm curious about you know as, as an example for myself I know I feel can feel self-conscious and and you know feel sort of quote unquote unqualified giving advice to people that are older than me you know purely you know might be a chip on the shoulder but uh yeah is that anything you sort of considered before yeah I, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna answer that begin answering it by asking your life experience might be really valuable you might be qualified based on what you've gone through mm. but because we're not we're younger or we don't have the qualifications, how does that mean that we don't have some credibility about what we might share? Mm. So um, if we look at from a a, a clinical academic perspective, very few of us qualify to treat, to manage, to support, to advise. But every single human being is qualified to listen. We don't need skill. Listening is actually a skill. But we don't need to have the expertise or the training or the experience to sit and listen. That's something we all have a capacity of doing. And what I mean by that is none of us have the right to tell someone else what to do. But every one of us has the opportunity of sitting and listening with the person, allowing them to talk, allowing them to share with us what it is that they want to share with us. And... You know, one of the things that I continually challenge audiences all the time that I'm engaging with is park any judgment, problem solving, fixing. If you're in a situation where somebody wants to talk to you, you're not the one that should be talking. You should be creating an environment that is safe and supportive that allows that person to discuss what it is that they want to discuss with you. And part of that, part of the challenge is I don't, I'm very mindful with language because I think think language is really important. Language is important to me. What am I saying to myself? But also what am I saying to other people? So I wouldn't say that I offer people advice. I would, I invest time in, okay, understand, listen, suggest, but suggest from the point of view of things that I have tried that have worked for me. Hey, this is what I did which helped. I can only talk about my own experience. So I'm not sitting here saying, do this, do that, but it might be worth thinking about seeing a GP. Yeah. Have you got a GP? Do you want to go and see the GP? 
Have you got a family member that you can talk to that you trust? Is there a colleague at work that you trust that you can talk to? Because what, what I'm learning, we, we Pucker Up is uh, an organisation since day one have um, championed advocacy around normalising conversations, creating environments, inviting people in, giving them permission to talk. But awareness alone is no longer good enough. We have a lot of awareness, but it's not addressing the underlying issues for people. So just talking about it doesn't solve it. It's part of it, but we need to go much further. And what we've done is we, we have a partnership which is uh, unique in Australia because it's never been done, but we, we've combined our organisation, which is advocacy, with a, a um, clinically validated um, suite of programs which comes underneath a, um, uh, an organisation called Optimal Health. And this is a long-winded e example, but <clears throat> um, what it allows us to be able to do is we can create the conversations, establish the environments for the conversations, but we also now have programs which are clinically validated which help people develop the tools. And what I've learned, and I continue to learn, is people already have the answers. Our job when we're supporting someone is to help them find their answers by listening and opening up the conversation for the person to explore, what do I have available to me? Who's in my network? What resources can I tap into? Have I got a GP, a psych, a psychologist? Have I got a colleague that I can talk to? All of these things. And I'm learning that every person has answers available to them. It's not our job to tell them or fix them. Our opportunity is to help them explore what they can do for themselves. Mm. And that's empowering. And that's a really long-winded answer, I'm sorry. No apologies necessary for long answers yeah. when they're quality. So I don't all. try to tell people what to do. I don't give them advice. I'll make suggestions. I'll ask questions that allows them to start to come up with the answers. Mm. But there's a writer on all of that. I've been in situations where uh, very good friends of mine have been in um, um, some very uh, dangerous situations. That's when I take a lead. Yeah. yeah. And I'll make decisions because I'm concerned about the person's immediate health and safety. Yeah. That's a very different scenario. Absolutely. I that's a different role. But invariably... Um, most of the time is sit, listen, explore. How can I help you? What do you need from me? Yeah. That's yeah. it. And it's a really good point. I mean, it's, a, it's an excellent point and well put. You know, it's, um, and you're right, I guess that quote unquote qualification, you know, or lack, or lack thereof, you know, and that perception is, you know, it's probably, I mean, it, it comes from insecurity probably more than anything else. And I guess, yeah, but you, you know, have lived experience, right? Absolutely. Yeah, yes. definitely. So you've got credibility. Everybody's got credibility. We, we have this default position that and I understand it but I'm not qualified I don't have the experience I'm too young I'm this I'm that no I'm qualified because I'm, I'm the owner of my life yeah so there are some things that I or you have gone through which could be helpful for somebody else and it's so and even in the conversations that we've had with you know like a you know a handful of the AFL players and, and, the, and the soccer guys as well is you know they always when they're talking about you we often ask them you know what's some of the hardest things they've been through and and really frequently i mean almost attached to every single one of those answers is you know oh it could have been a lot worse and i'm sure people have been through worse and things like that and you know like that's a and that's a an understandable feeling to have but ultimately i mean it's probably a disservice because you know it's your it's your burden and you are you know you're the one who ultimately is the one dealing with that yeah. and and feeling that more so than anyone else and yeah. you know someone's 
pain and anguish and struggling in these sort of scenarios is is a relative concept you know like it's relative to you it's relative to your life experience as well so Correct. yeah that does make you your i mean yeah. you yourself are, are the most qualified for, we, for your own stuff human beings make a lot of assumptions without ever testing it and we do doubt ourselves it's part of being a human pe- a human being but one of the challenges that we see as an organization is that a lot of people's um, self-doubt, lack of self-worth, lack of self-love, value is being driven by this insufficiency. I'm not good enough. I'm not worthy. I'm not deserving. And that for us is part of the problem for society and that is we believe every person is enough. But a lot of us, and I've been guilty of this, is that we feel like we've got to meet expectations of other people, family, friends, work colleagues, mates, girlfriends, society, yep. especially as men. There's a, there's a significant amount of pressure associated with being a male in Australia. Be tough, be strong, don't be weak, don't be soft, don't be sook, don't be vulnerable, because that's what, that's what mm. pussies do. I mean, this is the narrative that we're all conditioned with, right? It's bullshit. That's what we're being told to be. And if we, in my opinion, if we don't start to sit back and go, what are my expectations? What's important to me? Who are the important people in my life? And how can I live my life according to what I hold dear, my values and my expectations? And what I really mean by that is if we live our life trying to meet the expectations of other people or other things, what will invariably happen is we won't achieve it, which means we've failed and we're not good enough. So why are we living a life trying to meet other people's expectations? They're going to judge us anyway. So, and this is easy for me to say, I'm 51. It's taken most of my adult life to get to this position. But for the last five or six years, I don't care what people think. I hope people respect me. I hope people like me. There's positive things that people feel or think towards me. But you know what? People are going to judge me when I walk out the street, whether they, they know me or not. I'm not going to worry about that anymore. This is who I am. This is how I live my life. I like it. It serves me. And fuck everybody else. And I don't mean that in a disrespectful way, but I'm a vulnerable, emotional man because that's important to who I am. And I've spent most of my life trying to meet and fit in to be accepted and respected. That didn't serve me. No. And I see a lot of men. The, the, the two things that I get from men all over the country consistently is, number one, I'm hurting, or number two, I'm in pain. And my question will be, who are you talking to? No one. Why are you talking to me? Because I know you won't judge me. Mm. That's the most consistent thing that I get from men all over the country. Yeah. So what that tells me is there's so many men in our communities who are hurting, but are shit scared of showing vulnerability and talking about it because of the risk of being judged or seen as weak. And that's a problem for me. It is a problem. And I mean, you know, and, f- and for yourself as well, I guess, you know, coming up in in a generation that was when all of that harden up sort of stuff was really prevalent. And I mean, it's evidence in, in even just being, you know, like, you know, the hard men of footy were all from the 90s and stuff like that, you know, that perception existed. And, uh, you know, and for, like you said, you know, being 51 and, and I guess having seen the transition away from that in a way, like in, in culture today, because, you know, arguably it has, it has moved away from that. 
to some degree, but you know, and you know, you you know, with your qualified you know opinion and understanding, it's obviously still evident. Like you still see it, you know, all the time. Yeah, every day. Look at a paper. Mm. Watch the TV. Listen to the radio. Look at the way marketing is still applied here. Um, if we don't, if we don't start to change, consciously change what we say about ourselves or to others around us who, who are important to us, including our children, then we will have this ongoing issue with people taking their lives. And what I mean by that is, um, again, this is my, I, I'm, I've been doing public speaking for well over 14 years all across the country. And there's, we've all bought into a narrative. And, and what I mean by that is, We've been conditioned to believe, we as in men and males and young boys, are conditioned to believe it's girls and women that are vulnerable and emotional. They're the ones that cry. They're the ones that scream. They show all of their emotions as they should. And men and boys don't. It's actually not true. It's not true. And, and, and I do informal market research to prove this. And how I prove it is that I'll invite audiences uh, if they can remember a time when they were a young boy or a young girl when they hurt themselves and they cried. And I invite audiences to stand up. 95 to 99% of audiences stand up, including the men. So what that proves is males and females, different genders, but they all behave in the same way because that's how we're born. But then because of gender, what happens is the messaging changes. Because as you start to grow up, become a teenage boy, young adult man, into a man, the expectation is from others and other things. You are a man. You disconnect emotionally because that's not how a man behaves. And unless we change that narrative, then what we're going to do, and I've got a 13-year-old son with twin daughters as well who are 17, about turn. If I, don't, if, if I deliver those messages to my kids and my son, then all I'm doing is I'm subconsciously conditioning my son to behave in the way that I was conditioned to behave. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to do it. I want my son to grow up knowing that you can be vulnerable, you can cry, you can hurt, you can feel pain, you can talk. You can show love, you can receive love as a, as a young boy and a man. And I say to him, much to his frustration, I said to him this week, I don't care how old you are, how many kids you got, how long you've been married, I will not stop kissing you, hugging you and telling you I love you for the rest of my days. I will not, because it's important to me. It helps me feel connected to my son, but it's also giving him permission that this is how men behave. right? And this is why I believe there are a lot of men in pain and hurting because they're shit scared of what their dads will say or other influential men will say if they show vulnerability. That's not fair. Mm. It's not fair because these men are paralysed by fear. That's why I'm so passionate about this issue. It's this, yeah, this stigma, this tradition, I suppose, isn't there? That I read something the other day that it said tradition is peer pressure from dead people. Yep. And yep. when we relate it to the conversations, I can tell you, I've never felt more empowered when, and when I was sitting down with a, a bunch of mates and sitting there crying yeah. and telling them why I was upset and why I was hurting and it. You know, then the next person starts crying and says, you know, far out, like, yeah, I'm doing the same thing. Oh, I'm, I've got this going on. And that empowerment with the four or five of us going around the table and yeah. feeling okay to just go, yeah, fuck it, walls are down, I'm crying. Yeah. It's, it's an unreal thing. And, yeah, the stigma to... To try, to try and break that stigma and tradition and realise like how, how powerful it is for everyone is, yeah, it's incredible. I, I remember 
when I was younger, seeing one of my best mates kiss his dad hello in the morning, I was having a sleep, I would have been year seven or eight. I was like, what the bloody hell is that? Like, never seen it before. Like, you know, I I love my dad. I tell him all the time. But, yeah. you know, when I sort of got to high school, that was, yeah, not hugging you anymore, mate. Yeah, come on. Not in public anyway, but I, I now, I've go on camps and stuff with school and, and I'll always make sure if I see my dad before I go, I'll give him a big hug and tell him I love him. And it's, yeah, yeah it's how it's changed. In, and that's only in the space of 10 years, I suppose. But yeah, it's pretty... Um, so that willingness to be vulnerable with your mates, I would argue that that's actually allowed you guys to be even closer at a deeper level. Yeah, definitely. A hundred percent. Definitely yeah. in a big way. Because right. unfortunately for a lot of us, we operate at a really superficial level because we're shit scared of what the response will be. But if you're prepared to come into that space and show authentic vulnerability, yeah. it's empowering for you, but the invitation for your mates is to do the same. Yeah, exactly. Which means you go past the superficial and you go down to this really beautiful space where you give a shit about each other. Yeah. Hey man, are you okay? You know I love you, mate. Yeah. I'll do anything for you. Are you okay? And I get messages from one particular guy all the time if, I, if he hasn't heard from me or if I'm not posting on social media within a couple of days. He just goes, checking in. Just checking in. You all right? Yeah, I'm good, man. Yeah. I love you. I love you back. I'm 51. He's late 40s. And I've cried more in my adult life in the last six months because I lost a great mate, a high-profile football person, um, and, and I cried in front of my dad, my chairman, uh, my colleagues here at work. I've cried in front of my kids, my wife. I've cried in front of my mates. I've cried in front of complete strangers. Because that's important to be able to do that. Yeah, big time. Right? And I think that hopefully conversations like this, whether they're recorded or not, have never been more important for men of all ages, especially the next generation coming through, because we're human beings. Mm. Why should we deny ourselves the ability to experience all of our emotions? Because of the expectations of what we've been told or what we're being taught. It's not serving us. Mm. It's killing people. Yeah. Definitely right. To, to jump into, I guess, yeah, I mean, as you mentioned, talking about these conversations being recorded. So, you know, to jump to the, uh, like, the Pucker Up podcast. Yep. So, fair to say, Liam and I, big fans. Uh, and, uh, yeah, really, really impressed with, I guess, the unapologetically honest, open, you know, brutally honest, as, you, you know, as, you've, as you've said, you know, throughout, even in this chat and, and, uh, and through the podcast. It's, um, yeah, to be commended. And, yeah, we are, we are really, really big fans. So... Where I guess you know, you know, if you can, sort of talk us through the like the infancy of that, and and, and I guess you know making its way through into into what it became is you know obviously really recognisable and, and doing a lot of good work in this space. No, I, I appreciate that. Um, I really appreciate those kind words. Um, the idea came from this belief of mine that, geez, I can remember fourteen years ago. Uh, this conversation would never have happened. Yeah. Seven years ago, never have happened. Um, so as it's... Uh, uh, this sounds self-indulgent. It's not meant to be self-indulgent. But I've been advocating and talking mental health when mental health wasn't even a thing. Yeah. Right? So it's not something that I've just started to do. It's not something that's sexy now I should be doing. it. This has been something that I've been doing mm. for four, well over 14 years. 
And what I realized a few years ago was I see the value in having these conversations for my own health. But I then started to see that once I started to really ramp up more uh, advocacy work, more active on social media, the number of people that started to come to me privately talking about, you know, this is really helpful, you know, um, I really value what you're saying, all this sort of stuff, um, started to give me this belief that mental health can be a topic that a lot of people really struggle to talk about, and that's not a criticism, or they don't feel comfortable talking about it. So I thought to myself, okay, what happens if we did a podcast which was about mental health, emotional well-being and this issue of suicide prevention, and we did it in a really honest way? Because these are, I mean, as you both know, these are, these are really difficult experiences to go through, these type of conditions. So if, if I'm not honest and open about it, then I'm doing the people that are living with these conditions a disservice. So the whole, the whole premise was normalising mental health and emotional well-being having conversations with people that have gone through lived experiences or work in this space so that we could normalise the discussion. And do it, these, these issues can be really complex and confronting, but what I think that we've been able to do is we've taken these complex confronting topics and conditions and simplify them so that they are digestible for anyone. Um, and, and, and hopefully we've done it in a way that people can start to understand that you know, these are issues affecting a lot of people. Um, these are people that have gone through experiences, but importantly, they've managed to get their way through it. How have they got their way through it? How do they manage their health now? Who do they tap into when they are really struggling? And it's really sharing those stories to give other people that are going through the similar experiences an opportunity to understand, I'm not on my own. If it can happen to them, it can happen to anyone. They've gone through tough times and they've got better. Well, maybe I can do. And the, the best thing about podcasting is it is the safest platform for anyone to put a set of earphones in. And you can be on a train, bus, plane, walking, running, whatever, cafe, educating yourself, increasing your knowledge about mental health, emotional well-being, suicide prevention, and there's no risk of disclosure because mm. no one knows what you're listening to. It's the safest environment for people to educate themselves. Yeah. That's why I love podcasting around these topics because people can listen to it without the risk of other people finding out what's going on, what they might be dealing with, and they start to increase their knowledge. Knowledge and education changes lives. That's why we do what we do. Big way. Uh, and so, and, and, and pucker up itself. So like the pucker word, I know I've heard a few, I guess, uh, like, shortened explanations of where of where paka actually comes from but yeah. if you yeah, care to sort of you yeah. know for anyone that hasn't listened before it's a hindi word and it means authentic and genuine yeah. and that's deeply personal because for over 12 years of my 14 and a half year playing career i was neither so i hid behind a facade of lies to protect what i thought was more important and that was thoughts opinions and behaviors of other people and the fear that if they knew i had mental health conditions they judge me see me as weak and i'd lose respect so for 12 years, I was neither authentic or genuine, which means that I paid the price. Um, so it's a daily reminder to me that I'm going to be open and honest. I don't care what people think, because my health is my responsibility. So I'll do everything I can within my powers to prioritise my mental health. I'm not going to lie. I don't lie. I'm six months on uh, medication for anxiety, because with the loss of a very good friend, it's, I slipped back. I made adjustments in my life, made a recognition that I'm struggling, saw my GP, took medication. But during my playing career, I hid it from everyone, including my wife, because of the shame. 
I don't do that now. What have I got to be ashamed about? Nothing. People want to judge me differently. That's up to them. I'm going to do what I need to do and I will not compromise my health for anything or anyone. So it's a reminder to me this is what I need to do, number one. And number two, it's something that we believe we can encourage and empower other people. Stop pretending because it's costing you. Mm. Start to be open and honest about what you need, what you need to do, and with those that care about you. And focus on that because when we can do that, we start investing back into ourselves and we can get healthy and well again. I just want to maybe touch on, you, you briefly mentioned the 12 or 14 years in your career that you were living yep. in secrecy. Um, and I know from listening to past conversations you've had and on your podcast, uh, diagnosed with depression in 93. Mm-hmm. And then was it 96, you won the premiership and you actually posted a really incredible yeah, photo sure. saying, yeah. you know, like this is what suicidal looks like mm-hmm. of you standing there with a cup. Um, on the dice, you know, living out, as you said, childhood dreams of other people. And I suppose obviously at some part in your life that would have been a childhood dream of yours as well to, to be standing there and and celebrating that success and move forward to retiring and then waiting until 2006, I think, was when you, you've mentioned that you first spoke about... Done your research. Your, yeah, I try to. <laughs> um, you first spoke about your, your struggles and your battles. and Yeah. One thing that it stood out to me, I was actually over the summer watching a cricket test match or something, and they had a, they rained out and they put this program on, and it was talk. There was some some commentators talking about um, the average lifespan or, or of first suffering or dealing with something and then going and seeking treatment was ten years. Yeah. Um, I think you were about six years from memory. Yeah. Um, so you sort of fall within that that bang. Yep. 12, and then 12 years was when you first publicly made it um, known. What mm-hmm. I, I want to know, if looking back on it now and, and knowing all the things you know now and understanding how you how you work internally, what do you think was the reason? I know you say you were scared of the judgment, but is there anything else that stopped you from speaking out earlier? Uh, yeah, there's a few things. I lived in paralysing fear for 12 years of losing respect, yeah. losing my career losing opportunities, losing friendships, losing family. I was convinced for 12 years that if I took that chance and told people, then I'd lose those things. And I wasn't prepared to lose those things. They were more important than my own health. That was one. Um, The shame that I felt towards myself because I foolishly believed that uh, there was something wrong with me. There was something wrong with me, ironically, but I, I just felt this tremendous amount of shame because I felt that for some reason I was weak or something was wrong with me I was broke all of these all of these thoughts this narrative internal this is why I believe in messaging so important I just had this destructive toxic internal dialogue um, I you know premiership that, that is the greatest day of my sporting career by yeah. the way it's yeah. something that I'm so grateful that I had that opportunity and I look back at that moment, go, man, what a special time. But it was a really difficult time because by that stage, I was living with anxiety, depression, obsessive compulsive disorder. I was just drinking so much alcohol, smoking so much dope, just self-medicating out of desperation. Um, but I think importantly through all of that is the humans, the human being's ability 
to still achieve at such a high level mm. whilst being under enormous yeah. emotional stress mm. is off the chart. And I'm not saying that about myself, I'm saying about everyone yeah, else. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Your ability to get up, have a shower, get dressed and go to work while living with any of these conditions, off the chart. Yeah. Off the chart. Because the amount of effort it takes to front up, to pretend, keep it together without losing your shit and do your job, whatever it is, the courage and strength of people to be able to do that is incredible. So I was able to do that while living with these conditions, but I, I couldn't come to terms with the fact that I'd lose respect, that people would not want me to be a part of their lives. My relationships and friendships were the most important thing. I was convinced, I was vice-captain to Wayne Kerry during this period, and I was convinced that if my club knew I'd lose a vice-captaincy, I'd get the boot. So all of the, and the income that I was earning was, was important to me. So I, I didn't want to risk any of that. But, but probably the greatest fear that I had was that people would judge me differently. Mm. And I, I, I just was uncomfortable with that. So I chose not to, say, stay, um, not to say anything. And the irony of my experience is that there was not one moment in 14 and a half years where I ever compromised physical health because they were my tools. Yeah. If I felt a bit crook, got a game in four days, I'd ring the doctor, I'd go and see him and say, listen, this is what's happening. Just want to make sure I'm in good nick, yeah, ready yeah. to go for the weekend, fantastic. Yeah. Didn't care if there was no people, 10 or 100 people in the waiting room. Didn't give a shit what you were thinking, didn't care. I didn't do, I never compromised that once during my entire career. But I was diagnosed on the 9th of August 1993 and I waited six years before I asked for help. Mm. That's crazy. Yeah, it's massive. It's crazy. Mm. And during that time I was put into contact with two male psychologists how does, a, how, does a, how does a 23 to 27 year old male sit down with another man and talk about emotions mm. when you've never had one conversation in your entire life? Mm. I didn't have the dialogue or a toolbox to be able to communicate what it was. But what was interesting was um, I, the, the few times that I went and saw these men, I had to be the first or the last appointment in the day. Okay. Those people in the waiting room always wore a cap yeah. and I'm old enough where we had the old version of the age the really yeah. big thing two, right? two and a half yeah. cubic metres massive yeah, right yeah. always had it why because cap in receptionists were never allowed to mention my second name my surname yeah. because of the risk of disclosure and cap was in down as low as I could find the furthest room in the, in the corner in the room and I'd sit there and I'd just open up the age just wait I didn't read yeah it was just to hide my face mm. Because I was shit scared about if people saw me in a psychiatrist's room, what would they think? So this is the length that I went to, mm. yet I never had a hat or a paper and I didn't care who was in the waiting room when I was feeling physically unwell. Yeah. Yeah. Right? That's the absurdity of the way that we think or yeah. the way that I thought about mental health and yes. mental illness. Because I grew up believing that mental illness was weak people. Yeah. They'd done something wrong. Low socioeconomic background. They're so ignorant and uneducated, but that's what I thought. Mm. And that's how I felt towards mm. myself. Yeah. So two two things I want to sort of continue on with that. Get to 2006. Yeah. What changed? <laughs> I got tired of lying. Yeah. I, I, I came home in October of 2005. We just had our twin daughters. We were living in a suburb of Melbourne. I was working in the media by this. And, 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 and up until this moment, I can still recall a game. St Kilda played the Bulldogs at um, uh, Telstra Dome, now Marvel Stadium. And I was working with Tony Shaw and Jared Herling. I can't remember who else was there. 
and I was still battling with obsessive compulsive disorder and some anxiety and I'm sitting there and I'm commentating on air with Shory on my right, Jared on my left and someone else was calling and I'm sitting there while I'm commentating on the game that I'm seeing and internally I'm going, fuck me, imagine if these blokes know that I live with mental health, what the fuck are they going to think? Like if they knew now, they, they wouldn't want to work with me. So I'm having a physical conversation with the mic and my colleagues, but internally, this is the narrative that I'm having. And I finished that season, and I remember walking in one day, got home, and my wife said, how are you? I said, I'm really tired. She goes, what do you mean? I said, I'm just tired of the lie. Mm. So I've been lying to everyone, bar four people, my wife, two doctors, and a psychiatrist. I said, everybody else I've lied to for 15 years, and I'm tired of it. She goes, good, I've been waiting for this. I said, what does that mean? She goes, we're gonna have a meeting with the family. And I said, no, we're not. We did. Yeah. And I can honestly say it is the scariest thing that I've ever had to do because my dad was in that meeting and I love my dad dearly. But I believe that once my dad knew this is what I live with, he'd disown me. And going into that family meeting, I was convinced that once they knew, they'd all leave, including him. And fortunately, all of these assumptions that I had, not a single person in that room left. But for 15 years, I was convinced that I would lose them, yeah. but I never took that chance. Mm. And that's one of my big lessons is that when you, tell, when you invite people into what it is that you're living with, two things happen. One, you start to own your story as opposed to being a prisoner to it, right? So you start to get in front of it as opposed to be always behind it. And secondly, when you share with those that care about you what you're going through, in my experience, they'll then start to make different decisions because they have an understanding of what you're going through. Family and friends who genuinely care just want to help. Yeah. But I never thought that I'd get that response because of what I thought. Yeah. So I just got tired of lying. And um, the second scariest thing I did was the article that went to print on the 1st of March 2006. I had no idea what the response was going to be like, but it was the day that I started to get my life back because I didn't have to pretend anymore. Yeah. And I've only lost, I've lost three, three relationships since going public. If that's a price I have to pay yeah. to prioritise my wellbeing, then that's what I'll do. And I know you've commented on that in some of your Pucker Up podcasts and saying that if, if friends choose to go the other way when yeah. you've owned up to your how you're living, then that's, yeah. their, that's on them, that's not on you. And I, I don't have any issues with yeah. people who want to be negative or judge me differently. Yeah. I really don't. I, I'm not angry, I'm not bitter. Mm. I want those people to be happy. But if you're going to judge me differently or be negative towards me or anyone because they live with mental health conditions, you're not in my life. Mm. That's, that's discrimination. Yeah, exactly. And that's stigma. And discrimination and stigma are killing people. Mm. Um, and I'm not going to tolerate it. Mm. You know, it doesn't matter who it is. Yeah. You either accept me for what I've gone through. My conditions don't define me. In actual fact, my conditions have made me a better person. Yep. Period. A much better person. They were difficult experiences. I wouldn't want anyone to go through it. But it's taught me so much about myself. It's it's been um, a, a, a you know challenging but bloody rewarding journey of self discovery. Mm. I'm compassionate. I'm loving. I'm caring. I'm emotional. I'm a man. I'm a father. I'm a husband. I'm a son. All of these things. Without that experience, I wouldn't be the person that I am and through those challenging experiences I think we all have this opportunity of enormous growth 
And if you can manage to get your way through that and come out of it a better person, learning more about yourself, it, 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 it impacts every area of your life. You can be a better person, a better, a better mate, a better mm. husband, better son, better employee, better business owner, whatever it might be. I'm a better person. So, and with that, uh, as you mentioned before, that, um, you know, as, as far as these conversations go and being, you know, having mental health awareness, you know, being such a big part of your life, in a way being self-serving, you know, because it's good for, a good way for you to stay, you know, in tune with your own personal mental health and, and for it to be, you know, a bit, of a, a bit of a check for yourself too. So obviously that becomes, you know, a bit of a, you know, a tool in your toolkit for helping, you know, with your mental health. Yep. Is there other strategies, other things that you do outside of that? Well, I'm sure there is. What are some of the other things yeah, outside of that? Yeah, there's a few. Look, it's, 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 you know, I now have an internal checklist, which is automatically I can go back to very quickly. Um, uh, that allows me to regulate what's happening and identify challenges and then make different decisions. But this has been something that I've developed by trial and error, a lot of mistakes, a lot of bad choices, but because at the end of the day, my health is my responsibility. We can rely on family and friends as a support, but ultimately it's up to me, it's up to us to own our health. So once I made, I, I, I realised that for me to get healthy and well, it was really up to me. Those around me are going to play a really important role, but my health is on my, it's on, it's on me, it's my responsibility. So there's a number of different things that I will do. Um, tiredness will lead to agitation. Tiredness and agitation will eventually lead to periods of overwhelming sadness, gateway to anxiety. It's, it's as simple as that. Yeah. So I have a tendency of working a lot, not getting enough rest, exercising too much, which then means that I don't eat as well, I don't sleep as well, I don't drink alcohol, which I'll get to shortly. So there are, there are things that I have very deliberately eliminated out of my life because they do not help me. Sleep is the most important thing that I do for myself. If I drink alcohol, alcohol is a depressant. It lowers mood, but it also interrupts our ability to get quality sleep. If I don't get quality sleep, I'll get agitated and then I invite those overwhelming periods of sadness to come back in. So the choice is simple. Drink alcohol, increase the probability of welcoming anxiety back. It's grog. Do I need it? No. Do I have to use it? No, because I now have a level of confidence, even when I'm stressed. I don't need to drink to work my way through challenging situations. That's empowering, mm. right? So eliminate alcohol, quality sleep. Um, I exercise a lot. I'm a cyclist. Um, I love it. It's meditative. There's physical benefits, but there's a social connection with the group that I ride with. Um, I eat a predominantly plant-based diet. My wife's a vegetarian. We don't have red meat in the house. I'm not saying that that's what people should do, but a balanced diet is good for us. Mm -hmm. um, I, t I talk to all of my key support network, my dad, my wife, my doctor, my chairman, and my closest mates when things are good, when I'm struggling. I also give my mates permission. If they're worried, check in, call me, text me, whatever because I want them to have that and I want to allow them to be able to do that because they care. Um, and and the, the other thing that I've, I've very deliberately done, and, and again, this has been something that I've worked on and I continue to work on, but I, th this, this tool and emotion called crying was something that I 
had no connection to for most of my life as an adult. I couldn't cry. It was beyond me. But for the last five or six years, I've given myself permission and worked on allowing myself to reconnect with that really important emotion um, because I see no plausible reason why, why men and young males and males of all ages can't tap into that emotion like we tap into humour and sarcasm and strength and courage, those normal traditional um, male characteristics and traits. Um, giving myself permission to connect with that emotion and, and allowing myself to cry when I need to cry has been very important, very th therapeutical, especially with losing a very close friend of mine last year. And the other thing that I've also done in comp to complement um, uh, crying and being vulnerable is I tell the important men in my life that I love them regularly. Yeah. Regularly. Why? Because it's important to me. I don't want to go through my life and go, I wish I'd told my dad I loved him. It was his birthday today. Send him a message. I love you. When I lost um, Danny Frawley, um, who passed away tragically late last year, um, I sent the six closest men in my life very long text messages um, and told them what they meant to me, how much they meant to me and how much I loved them because that makes me feel good, makes me feel connected to them. But it's also... It's who I am. I want those men in my life, like the women in my life, to understand that I'm not afraid of telling them that I love them. Mm. It makes me feel good. It makes me feel connected with them. And to have them tell me that they love me is, is really empowering. Mm. Um, that's just, they're the things that I do that work for me. Now, there might be things that I've shared that don't work for anybody, and that's okay. What it really comes down to is trying things and exploring things that might work for you. But they are the things that I know I need to uh, do consistently, and when I say consistently, every day, in order to be healthy and well. And you know what? If I need to do this for the rest of my life, then I'm going to keep doing it because I want to be healthy and well. I'm not going to compromise my health anymore. Mm. Yeah. That's pretty uh, impressive, and I know it's, it's one thing that we... One exercise that we do, uh, I do, and Michael does personally, and and also on on the podcast is inspired by Martin Heffel from the Resilience Project in in getting uh, calling a best friend friend and telling him that you love him, and um, to hear that you do that already, and you, and that's saying that's so important to you is pretty um yeah it's pretty incredible. It just it it it's a natural thing for me to do. Mm. It's important for me to do that. Why shouldn't I tell the men in my life I love them? Mm. Why shouldn't I allow those men to love me back? I don't... I love my son. Yeah, that's normal. Society yes. says, yeah, that's cool. Yeah, cool. Yeah. Once your son gets a 16, don't kiss him, don't hug him. Bullshit. Mm. Why can't I do the same thing for my 48-year-old man, 48-year-old uh, mates or my dad who's 76? That helps me feel connected. I feel like I've got this relationship with those men where I've given myself permission to express to them what they mean to me. And I just, I just think it's really important. Mm. I just think it's really important. And, and, and too many men get denied that and don't feel that we have that right to be able to connect on that level. How is it a man telling another man that he loves him, that he's an important person in his life and showing that physical love, give me a hug, man, you know, I'm proud of you, I love you, all that sort of stuff, how is that weak? Mm. 
how is that wrong? It's wrong or weak in other people's minds. Yeah. But if it feels right and it's important to you, then my, my message is do it and take the chance. Because the interesting thing is, um, when we're prepared to live like that, whether we know it or not, we're giving other males in our lives permission to start to come into that space too. Or if you're doing it, you're doing it, it's good for you. I can see that, but okay, I want a bit of that too. Mm. And that's, that's, that's where we can start to change generational thinking. It's perfectly normal and Oof. we should be able to behave like this. Yeah. I, I want to ask you, you one question. Um, stop me if, if you don't want to comment on it. Or You mentioned obviously last year um, your great mate Danny Frawley passing away and yeah. that sort of triggered something in, in yourself again that you that you went and sought some help for. Yep. Um, you released a, a podcast episode of Danny's mm. and and you recorded it about a year, I think you said about a year prior to his passing. Yeah. Um, we've both, yeah, as Michael said, we're both huge fans of the show and obviously we've listened to that episode. Um, and one, one thing that really stood out to myself and I know Michael's mentioned as well is like how, how positive – he was at the time of recording yeah. um, about his outlook on, on the future and yeah. and releasing it after the passing of, of Danny Frawley. How hard was it for you to go? Okay, this needs to come out. Like we need, I need people to hear this. Yeah. So we, we re-released it. Um, I needed some convincing. Um, yeah, I definitely needed some convincing from um, my former employer, Southern Cross Osteria and Triple M, because it was their idea to re-release it, given the importance of yeah. what had happened. Yeah. It was a way of honouring Danny. I, I have tried to listen back to it, and uh, the moment I heard his voice, I had to stop it. I can't bring myself to listen to it again. I know, I know what was in the conversation, yeah. but at a very personal level, it's too hard for me to listen to. Um, Four weeks before he passed, uh, he had his own podcast and he was still championing the mission, yeah. don't do it on your own, if you're struggling, put your hand up, it's no longer okay to suffer in silence, four weeks before he mm. passed. Mm. This, this guy was so selfless, he was still pushing that message out in the hope to impact other males and other people to put your hand up. And I'm I'm just I'm so incredibly proud of him with the effort and fight that he gave this challenge. Um, it says a lot about an individual that he is still trying to help other people when he himself needs help. Mm. And I hope I hope that his passing um, uh, I hope that his passing gives other people permission uh, to begin to seek help, um, to begin to talk about it, to do all the things that they need to do. It's just, it's a, it's a shit reminder of the space that we work in, yeah. to be honest with you. Yeah. Like, this has probably been, Danny's passing was the thing in 14 years which is I've found the toughest and hardest to come to terms with. 
I miss I miss him. I miss him. I miss him every day, you know. Silly little things like a song will come on or um, he'll pop into my head. Um, yeah, I just love him. I love him. I wish he was here. He's not. Um, and I just feel he's, he's, he's in everything that I do. Um, and I feel this responsibility to continue to invest everything that I've got into this mission because... He was a great supporter of mine. And, and, you know, talking about love, we spoke so much in the weeks leading up to his passing and every conversation ended with, I love you. Every single conversation. And I'm, you know, I cherish that, yeah. you know. I just wish, I, I wish we had another opportunity, you know. But unfortunately, sometimes, tragically, this happens. So we do everything we can to make sure it doesn't happen. And Pucker Up's vision is unapologetically to end suicide. So we'll keep going until we hopefully achieve the mission. Mm. And uh, if we can do that, I'm sure that the great man will be looking down very proud. And I, and I know he's proud. I know he's proud. It's just tragic loss. Yeah. It really um, it speaks to, uh, to, to the, the idea of legacy in a big way, you know, because I think it's, um, you know, uh, like obviously, you know, Liam and I being 28, you know, got a, you know, lot, lot, lot more years on the clock, hopefully. It's, um, but it is like, it's still an interesting concept and definitely something that I think even myself now, I know it's something that I, I sort of think about and not in terms of how you'll be perceived, but, you know, like of, for one, I mean, this, the podcast is such a great example, you know, that like Liam bringing this idea, to me, you know, in last year and, and me wanting to, you know, get on board, you know, to be honest, with some apprehension to begin with, but then deciding, you know, and getting to terms with the fact that this would be something that I already am and will forever be really, really proud of, even if it is affecting, you know, just a small community. And, you know, yeah, you're ex- and exactly like what you said about Spud is, you know, like his his influence and his legacy will be will be strong and, oh, and it's huge it's huge the thing that the, the most common thing that I've had said to me from people who um, Spud was universally loved and liked and the, the, the most common thing that I've had people say to me they've come up and they've said I've never met him but I felt like I knew him mm-hmm. like I don't know what else you'd ever want said about him no that says so much right that's the type of personality they had and i think as i said before was i think the selflessness of this man to continue to commit himself to helping other people whilst he at the same time needed help that's courage he didn't have to but he chose to continue to do um and uh, i don't believe he did it for legacy uh, I'm not certainly doing this for legacy, but I'm doing this for impact. And and I, 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 I never underestimate these conversations, even at, 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 even at, at any level, whether it's a one listener or a million listeners. A five minute conversation can save a person's life. And whilst I think it's fantastic that you got this podcast and you're hoping to help other people. It's obvious that you're helping each other. Mm. Well, that's pretty cool too, yeah. right? Mm. Why shouldn't we get the same benefit to those that we're trying to help? And I think legacy legacy for me is an interesting word. I think impact is, is something that I'm really comfortable with because 
for me, and I'm only sharing my thoughts here, but legacy is about what's in this for me. Okay. Whereas I'm, I'm not comfortable with that. It's more about how much impact can we have today? What can we do today that will impact people positively? What can we be doing in six months, in 12 months, in 10 years' time that is impacting people positively? And what motivates us every day is we want to, we want to prevent people from taking their lives. That's our focus. And everything that we're doing is always about trying to prevent that from happening. And I think that's what's, you know, Spud's had a, his impact will be felt for years. Mm. Years, yeah. Yeah, he's a great man. It's beautiful, uh, beautiful words, Matt. And yeah, thank you for, for being so open and, and willing to share, I guess, that, that side. Well, I, it, it, If I don't, if I don't live what I try to encourage people to do, I'm a hypocrite. And for four weeks after he passed, I, I just couldn't talk. I didn't want to talk about him. But I'm comfortable with people asking the question because I want to remember him. Mm. You know, he's a great man. He's a great dad, great husband. He was a great friend, an unbelievable friend to me, a wonderful supporter of mine. And. I feel very fortunate that I, you know, I, I, he is arguably the funniest man I've ever met. A, a crazy lunatic, but I loved him. <laughs> and you'd be working in radio and he'd tell you a shit joke and you'd give him a little chortle, a little bloody uh, laugh through your nose. And if you gave him one little laugh, that was it. He was away and couldn't get him back, right? That's the mission. Oh, I just <laughs> made us like pouring petrol on a fire. Away, go. 15 minutes away, you're sitting there going, mate, we've just been talking shit 15 minutes. But I, I loved, I loved, I just loved him. I loved him in every way. I loved working for him. But the thing that I am so grateful for is that he gave me permission to support him. That's the thing that I really, I love him for the most. Because he trusted me enough for us to talk. You know, just talk. Mm. Like you two guys do. Just phone, cafe. Jeez, I can remember, yeah, just so many times we just had... What real conversations and, mm. and as much as I miss him that's the stuff that I think back and I go man that was just a, I'm very lucky that he allowed me that you know mm. um, yeah he's yeah he's just he's superstar superstar yeah yeah a f funny joke not a funny joke funny story <laughs> um, uh, I, I was playing a state game at the MCG um, mid-90s and uh, might have had some diarrhoea in the lead up to the game and not uh, ideal not ideal especially when you're wearing white shorts <laughs> and, and you guys uh, were away during the trouble. war I thought I'd squeeze one out and get away with it but I uh, may have just uh, carried through with the run through a bit and of all the blokes that I played footy with who do you reckon saw it Spud so I, I, I worked with Spud first on and off for 17 years and every time he'd go to bring it up on air or be doing a sportsman I'd, had it, I'd managed to go no <laughs> absolutely not mate veto, veto don't do it yeah well about two years ago we launched a new basketball centre at Bendigo Basketball Stadium okay, yeah. and this was a older crowd so I'm talking 60, 70, black tie, you know, no swearing. Okay, yeah, yeah. That was the moment that Spud thought it'd be funny to share. 
<laughs> went down like a fucking lead. <laughs> read the room, smart. Yeah, read no, the room. I didn't read it well, but he, <laughs> but he could see that I was going. Don't fucking say it, mate. Don't say this. And then in the end, he goes, "Fuck it, I'm going to say it." Once he started, he was going to follow through. Yeah. And once he finished, he's pissing himself laughing. I'm laughing at him because he's laughing, and no one else is laughing in the stadium. Crickets. No, nothing. And it got back to the organisers. How were they? Shit house. <laughs> Shit house. No, he's a good man. He's a good man. man. It's probably uh, an interesting point to raise. We were talking about the the state of origin in talking about your career as well and playing a handful of games for um, Victoria and and this, I guess, is is coming up on on Friday, the the bushfire relief state of origin game. But if we can ask maybe what, what your thoughts on bringing back the state of origin would be. Oh, look, I love the idea of it, but um, it's to raise money. It's going to be an exhibition game, right? So I get that. If we're serious about it, I'd want the real thing. Yeah, yeah. I don't want people holding back. No. If if we're going to play this and we're going to do it properly, then we do it properly, and that is 100 miles an hour. Yeah. But it's not going to happen. So um, I'll go, I'll have a look at it. I think it'd be great to see some of the, the greats play, but being lucky enough to play a handful of those State of Origin games, um, they're, they're an unbelievable experience. Yeah. Unbelievable experience. So it'll be a great experience for the players that are being selected, mm. don't get me wrong, but as a, as a busted-up old football player, I, I, I want to see them go. A lot more to it, then. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But, yeah. Um, yeah, I'd love to see it, but I don't see it coming back. Fair call. Yeah. Fair call. So, in uh, you know, as, as we mentioned before, sort of yeah, yeah, replacing replacing legacy with impact, and uh, and um, that's only my view. Though. No, no, of course, no, it's well put. No, definitely very pertinent. I think um, the so for yourself for pucker up, um, what is uh, I guess yeah, you know, without you know, without sounding like a job interview of uh, where do you see yourself in five years? But uh, like, I guess what's uh, what's the future hold? Yeah, it's a really good question. Yeah. We're uh, about a month away from launching a brand new website, which is really exciting. Um, we are also at the same time, uh, we have a partnership with an outdoor advertising agency, QMS. So um, when we launch our website, uh, all around Australia, regionally and metropolitan, there'll be pucker up um, messaging, Excellent. which is really exciting for us. But um, in conjunction with that, we now have our clinical partner, who have more than 20 years of, of um, expertise and experience in delivering programs, uh, which is really important for us because we do the conversation piece really well. Now we complement the conversation piece with skills, capacity and confidence that allow people to manage wellbeing. Because unfortunately, the, 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 the issue that we have in Australia is the, the way that we approach mental health is either crisis-driven or it's reactionary. So what happens is there'll be a crisis all the focus, the majority of focus, funding, investment, service delivery is in, fo- in crisis and it needs to be, right? Because a lot of people are sick. But if you're not sick enough, you won't be admitted. So you go back out in the community. Good luck with that. Or if you're sick enough, you'll be admitted. They might be a nine on the, on, on, on the crisis scale. And what, what we do is we look to abate the immediate crisis, which might mean that they go from a nine or a 10 down to a six or a seven and people go back out in the community. What, how have we addressed the underlying issues? We haven't. All we've done is de-escalate the immediate risk and the people go back into the community. 
So I'm not being critical of anyone that works in that space because it is really challenging, but also very important. But unless we approach mental health differently, how can we expect a different outcome? Mm. So what we are is we, we don't work in that space of crisis. We're at the other end of it, and that is prevention. We've got clinically validated evidence-based programs that are suitable for anyone in any business that gives people the tools, the confidence and the capacity to proactively manage well-being. So why wait until you get sick before you start thinking about investing in it, uh, into mental health and emotional well-being? So what we want to do is we want to work at, okay, everybody has well-being. You don't need to be sick to have mental health. No. You can be healthy and well, but that's still mental health, right? So we, we, we've got a um, strategy in place that is going to challenge the old narrative and it is very deliberately going to look to re-establish what well-being means and more importantly, giving people the opportunity of developing the tools and the confidence so that they can manage and maintain well-being in the same way as we invest into physical health or the same way we invest into servicing our cars. Most people spend more money and more time on servicing their cars than their own brain. Mm -hmm. That does not make sense to me. We service our cars so they don't break down, get sick or die. That makes sense. Okay, apply the same strategy to ourselves. So why wait until we get sick? So we're, um, we're going 100 miles an hour because we want to disrupt mental health in Australia and we want to empower people through education and give them the keys to their own well-being. And uh, we're going to give it a good go. Yeah, it's pretty exciting. Exciting stuff, very much so. You mentioned you, you are a keen cyclist, and I think from, from memory I've seen that you've done some work with Pucker Up in, in tours, like yep. fundraising um, events. And yep. Is there anything like that on the cards again in the future? Yeah. I, I mean, I know my, my old man's a, a mad cyclist, and I'm trying to get into it but I'm still too slack to go on a ride with him but I'd love to Does he wear lycra? He's a, he's a lycra man yeah, Amazing how sexy you feel when you got lycra Yeah, yeah. We went on Talk a Talk about uh, empowerment right yeah. like that's yeah. Uh, yeah Michael and I went on a work trip to China a couple of years ago and I was just hanging out to find a sports store that I could go and buy some lycra and then, yeah it feels comfort, it's comfortable Yeah it lots is of, Lots it of is. You, do, you do get a little bit self conscious <laughs> but that's okay you get used to it uh, yeah, we will. We'll, we'll definitely have another, uh, we're planning another ride next year. Um, uh, and the reason for pushing it back a bit is because our programs are critical to what we do. Um, you know, the, the bike rides are really good because it raises awareness, brings a lot of attention, creates a lot of media exposure. Um, the other thing we do is we very deliberately go through country areas because country areas don't have the resources, the funding, the services. Uh, that we do in metropolitan Australia, so that's deliberate. It's a great way of engaging country people around a really important topic. Um, but the programs are, are our focus in 2020 because we believe that the programs give people the tools to make positive change yes. in their life. So we want to establish the program, roll them out across the country, start to generate some uh, momentum um, and revenue because we're a social enterprise, which means that our programs generate revenue, which means that we're not relying on anyone, yep. government, the community, yep. philanthropic grants. So we have full uh, ownership and capacity to invest in areas that we want without any limitations or restrictions. Um, but we have every intention of um, 
doing another bike ride next year. Um, yeah, the, the, the bike ride's been really well received. Mm. Um, not only, oh, there's so many um, unbelievable stories that come out that have come out of our um, two bike rides we've done thus far, and probably the probably the, um, the one that the one that sort of really sticks in my mind is last year uh, we were it was a ten day bike ride. We'd ridden into Albury the night before. We're in. We're having brekkie. We had a, a big, like, three-ton truck. We'd pucker up. And on each side of the back of the truck, we had a simple message, and that was, I'm signing this truck to sign... Uh, I'm signing this truck to start a suicide prevention conversation. And it was a blank canvas when we yeah. started. And by the time we got back to Melbourne 10 days later, this thing was just covered with white signatures. It just looked magnificent. Uh, right? And then... But this next morning after we rode into Albury, I'm in the cafe across the road with um, most of the riders and staff having brekkie. And, um, one of our riders came in, Mick, and he was really upset, like really crying and just, he was shattered. And, um, went over to him, we sat down, like, mate, what's the matter? He goes, oh, just met this father outside. It's really emotional. We just hugged and just really upset. I can't believe that people have to live with this. I said, okay, I got a mate of mine to stay with Mick. Yeah. Went outside across the road. So this, this man, I wish I knew his name. He would have been 65. And unbeknownst to us, he knew that we were there that, the night before. He drove around, drove past the truck, thought about stopping to talk and kept driving on. Drove up to the next block, parked the car. Sat in the car for five minutes, got out of the car, walked up to the truck where Mick was, and they had an exchange. And that's when Mick came across the road to me. So I walked over, introduced myself to this guy. He was upset. We hugged in the middle of the road. Never met. We engage. I go, mate, what, what's what's upsetting you? You know, what, what what what's making you feel so emotional about this? And he goes, thirteen days ago, I lost my son to suicide, and I drove past your truck, and I didn't think I could get out of here. But if I had kept going, then what's that saying about my son? Mm. So he came out. And he just kept saying thank you, and I'm going, you don't have to thank us, mate. Like. I'm trying to make sense of how a father feels 13 days mm. after laying his son to rest because he took his life. And this, this man said, I'll make a promise to you. He said, for the rest of my life, I will do everything I can to create these conversations so no other father or family has to go through this. So a bike ride sounds a silly idea. That bike ride gave that man permission when he was going through a really difficult period to come into that space and start to talk. And we had stories like that every day. A stupid truck with the Pucker Up logo on it and a simple message gave people permission to come to the truck, sign it and start talking. That's why we do it. That's why we do what we do. What it proves is people want to talk. Yeah. We just need to create the environment. A truck is not a venue, it's not a hall, it's not a theatre, it's nothing, it's just a truck. But the truck gives people permission to come in and start mm. talking. That's what we do really well. We do really well. And I love stories like that because it means so much to people. There are thousands of people. There's eight families today that are trying to make sense and come to terms with someone has just taken their life. And there's another 30 for every suicide. So 240 families coming to terms with someone in their family or friend network has just tried the same outcome. Mm. So there's communities and families all across our country that are dealing with these shit sandwiches every day. 
well then we'll keep doing what we're doing because we want those people to know that we care enough to give them those conversations. Mm. Yeah. Huge. I'm just passionate about it. Yeah, I love it. it, it it's, I, I, I realised probably three years ago that this is, this is my purpose in life. Footy was just a vehicle. This is why I'm here. So this is this is this is my job. I just believe in it. That's uh, it's inspiring and yeah, yeah, big way. Very I don't nice. uh, look. I, I I appreciate that, but I don't think it's inspiring. I, I don't see myself as inspiring. I'm just someone who believes in the greater good of what we're trying to achieve. If it's inspiring other people, fantastic. I'm just we're just human, mm. you know. We're just trying to live and do things which allow other people to do the same thing. So if it's inspiring to you guys, then you guys are inspiring to other people. We can all be inspiring. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Awesome, I'm just trying to make a difference. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. It's the aim, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. We might... Uh... You good? Yeah. I'm good, yeah. Good. Look, uh, look, I'll be honest, Wayne. It's, um, you know, it's... I had... Uh, wasn't really sure. Like how, how, I mean, yeah, look, I, I guess, you know, like coming into conversations with, you know, like obviously the research and a bit of an idea of who we're talking to and stuff, but uh, it is, yeah, look, yeah, inspirational is a hard badge to wear sometimes, but I think um, this, you know, just personally, I'm sure Liam feels exactly the same. It is, you know, you know, ours as it stands is obviously, you know, a mission on a different scale to your own, but, uh, but, but quite aspirational. And I think, you know, a conversation like this is just a really good reaffirmation of, you know, of what we're, you know, of what Liam and I are trying to achieve. And yeah, for that, you know, yeah, that's it. You don't really have any other choice, but to be considered inspirational for that. So yeah, I really think it's uh yeah, it is a, um, a really, yeah, very, very grateful for the talk today. Oh, it's a big thing been a pleasure um want to acknowledge you both for making the decision to start your own podcast and um we all have the same opportunity you can take the microphones off and this could be a dinner table mm. or it could be a couch still a conversation that we can all be part of and um, we might do things slightly different or in different areas but the reality is that the conversations that you're both creating you may or may not know but they'll save lives it's pretty cool yeah yeah, so don't underestimate yourself. No, absolutely yeah. not. Yeah, make sure you keep doing what you both need to do to be healthy and well. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, thank you. Um, might finish on the, on the last question if, if we could. And, um, we like to get our guests to nominate two people, um, if, if that's something that you are interested in doing, in, in sort of two people that you think would have a really powerful message to, to speak about or... Two people that would have a really good conversation. Hmm. I'll I'll give you one straight off the cuff, and I only I only had the chance to speak with this lady for thirty minutes. But the uh, chairwoman of Beyond Blue is a very impressive woman, Julia Gillard. Julia Gillard. Um, mm. Very very knowledgeable, uh, very smart, um, articulate, um, and unfortunately. A week after I'd finished interviewing her, she did an article in the paper to talk about her anxiety challenges whilst being a politician. Yeah. I wish I had known that a week before, but I think that she'd be, I think that she'd be a fascinating conversation um, for somebody uh, for for your podcast. And I think it's really important to get as many female stories and voices 
to give things balance. Mm. Um, and from a from a male's perspective, who would I want to interview? Oh, I tell you, and I'll, again, I interviewed these guys uh, on our podcast in series one. They're both located in Melbourne. Um, Will and Woody. Yeah. You know, really powerful story. Will uh, has. I don't know if you've seen the video, but they yeah did it released a video about four years ago. Uh, on air partners, best mates. Will talked openly about his challenges living with mental health conditions, and Woody talked about you know how this impacted him as a friend. And I think you know for males, you know how do I have these conversations? How do I bring it up with my mate that I'm worried about him, or this is how it? Woody talked about how Will didn't return phone calls or text messages um, uh, at one point and Woody, the impact and how scared he was because, yeah. shit, what's happened to him? Yeah. It's a powerful story, right? Because there'll yeah. be a lot of guys in your networks and listen to the podcast that are shit scared about one of their mates. Having those two on could be quite good because I think they've got a unique look at the person who's got the lived experience but also the mate who's helping a person who's got a lived experience. And they're funny. They're both funny. That'd be my two suggestions. Yeah, nice. Okay. Well, to close it out, as we do, just want to say one last time, Wayne, really, really big thanks. Really appreciate the time. And time is a valuable resource, especially for someone going 100 miles an hour like yourself, as you said. So we are really grateful for, yeah, for the slice that you've made for us as well. And, uh, yeah, really, really excited to put this conversation out uh, out into the world for for the crew that we do have and, and for ourselves as well. No, it's been a pleasure. I appreciate the opportunity to come and have a chat. Liam? Yep. Thank you. Thank you, mate. Muff? Awesome. So for everyone, thank you all very, very much for listening. This is the Men of Words podcast where the little conversations can make the biggest differences. Nice finish. I like that. Thank you very much. Good job, lads. There we go. Hey guys, Murphy here. Real quick one for you. This episode would not have been possible if not for Nikki Bella. Wayne's superstar EA and our friend of the show Emma Dankett for putting us in touch with Wayne in the first place you guys are both absolute legends